1: GRU operators masquerade as Ukrainian telecommunications providers. Another video game maker is compromised to spread malware. Nobaris may be a successor to DarkSide and Black Matter ransomware. Robert M. Lee from Dragos explains crown jewel analysis. Our guest is Nathan Hunstad from Code 42 with thoughts on insider risk events. And threat actors have their insider threats too. From the CyberWire studios at DataTribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, September 22nd, 2022. Recorded Futures Insect Group reports that the GRU has established new infrastructure for cyber espionage against Ukrainian targets – the threat actor UAC 0113, which CERT UA thinks is probably associated with the GRU's sandworm operation, is using dynamic DNS domains as it masquerades as telecommunications providers. It uses HTML smuggling to distribute Colibri Loader and the Warzone Remote Access Trojan. The objectives of the campaign remain unclear, but Recorded Future thinks it's a Russian combat support effort. The tools deployed in the attacks aren't bespoke tools developed in-house by the intelligence services, but rather are commodity malware publicly available in the criminal-to-criminal market. Russian telecommunications outfits have indeed established services in territories occupied by the Russian army, but these are overt operations intended to replace Ukrainian providers with Russian ones. Wired reports that as Russia's battlefield fortunes have experienced reversals, the telcos have retreated with the troops. The point of setting up Russian services to replace Ukrainian ones is at least twofold. It helps normalize the Russian occupation, acclimating the population to accepting it as an accomplished permanent state of affairs. Equally importantly... It increases the Russian ability to control what Ukrainians say, show, see, and hear. CISA has issued a joint warning with the FBI outlining the conduct of the cyber campaign Iran waged earlier this month against Albanian government targets. The warning includes recommended protections and mitigations should the campaign spill over to targets outside Albania. A second Take Two Interactive brand, 2K Games, has sustained a compromise. Spoofed support communications that misrepresented themselves as coming from 2K Games support desk were found to be spreading the Redline Stealer. Family-friendly 2K's edgier corporate sister, Rockstar Games, had seen an intrusion that compromised some games under development. 2K's compromise was in some respects more serious. In that it represents a threat to users and not simply a disclosure of intellectual property. 2K Support tweeted a warning yesterday that explains what it's determined about the incident, saying, Earlier today, we became aware that an unauthorized third party illegally accessed the credentials of one of our vendors to the help desk platform that 2K uses to provide support to our customers. The unauthorized party sent a communication to certain players containing a malicious link. Please do not open any emails or click on any links that you receive from the 2K Games support account. The communication goes on to recommend a range of best practices any affected users might follow to minimize the damage. The goal of the compromise was distribution of an info-stealer. TechRadar reports the attackers would first open up a fake tech support ticket and soon after reply to it. In the reply message, they'd share a file named 2klauncher.zip, inviting the players to run it on their endpoints. The file turned out to be Redline Stealer, a known info stealer that's capable of grabbing passwords stored in the browser, stealing banking data, as well as cryptocurrency wallets. Furthermore, Redline can grab VPN credentials, web browser history, and cookies. There's no firm attribution of this second attack on a Take-Two brand— but Bleeping Computer speculates on the basis of victimology and the method of approach that this attack, too, is the work of the Lapsus Group. Nobaris ransomware looks like it's the successor to DarkSide and Black Matter ransomware, and they seem to have been developed by the same crew. The Symantec Threat Hunter team this morning released a report detailing the Nobaris ransomware, also known as Black Cat or Alf V. It's believed that Nobaris is a successor to the Dark Side and Black Matter ransomware families, developed by a group tracked by Symantec as Coride. Coride provides ransomware as a service, developing the ransomware for affiliates who then give Coride a cut of the profits. Nobaris was first seen in November of 2021, coded in Rust. This is the first observed professional ransomware strain used in attacks that was coded in the cross-platform language. Due to its cross-platform coding language, Koride says that Nobaris can be used on multiple different operating systems, including Windows, XE, Debian, Readiness, and Synology. Nobaris appeared shortly after Black Matter was retired, and Koride said in the rules that the ransom cannot be used to attack the Commonwealth of Independent States or neighboring countries, organizations in or related to the healthcare sector, charitable or nonprofit organizations— And they added that affiliates are also advised to avoid attacking the education and government sectors. It's an interesting set of exclusions. If we were betting, we'd say the smart money was on the exclusion of Russia and its sphere of influence being the one that mattered. The others are the usual empty posturing as Robin Hood's one so often finds in gangland. Koride also highlighted the features that make the ransomware stand out from the competition— stating that each advert is provided with an entrance through its own unique Onion domain. The affiliate program architecturally excludes all possible connections with forums. Even if a full-fledged command line shell is obtained, the attacker will not be able to reveal the real IP address of the server and encrypted negotiation chats that can only be accessed by the intended victim. Updates to Noberis have been continuous since release, researchers report. An updated version of the Trojan.xMatter data exfiltration tool was observed being used alongside Nobaris in August 2022. XMatter was designed to steal specific file types and route them to an attacker's server prior to the deployment of ransomware. Information-stealing malware InfoStealer.info has also been observed being used alongside Nobaris and is designed to steal credentials from backup software. And finally, even threat actors have their insiders and, therefore, their insider threats. The builder for LockBit's new encryptor, version 3.0 or LockBit Black, released just this past June in the criminal-to-criminal market, has been leaked online, bleeping computer reports. Researcher Export tweeted early this morning that unknown person at Ali Quisji, whose account has been temporarily restricted due to unusual activity, said his team has hacked the LockBit servers and found the possible builder of LockBit Black ransomware. LockBit says it was an insider leak and not an external attack. After Export's tweet, VX Underground reported that someone using the hacker name ProtonLeaks contacted them on September 10th. ProtonLeaks at that time showed them a copy of the builder. It's unclear whether Proton Leaks and Ali Gushi are one person or two people, or whether perhaps their name is really Legion. Lockbit reached out to VX Underground to deny that they'd been hacked, that the leak was the work of a disgruntled developer unhappy with Lockbit's leadership. The story is interesting in a number of ways, and especially in the way it reveals the way a criminal enterprise apes many of the functions that one finds in a legitimate business. Lockbit Black had been tested for two months before its release, and it sported novel modes of extortion and anti analysis capabilities. Its release was also accompanied by a bug bounty program, and the Ransomware as a Service gang maintains a support representative, Lockbit Sup, who serves as the public face of the outfit. It was Lockbit Sup who contacted VX Underground to explain that Lockbit had experienced an insider breach, not an external hack. What had upset the leaker or leakers enough to motivate the leak is unclear, but evidently Lockbit has some unresolved HR issues. Too much PowerPoint in the break room, we'll bet. We feel for you. Coming up after the break... Robert M. Lee from Dragos explains crown jewel analysis. Our guest is Nathan Hunstad from Code42 with thoughts on insider risk events. Stay with us. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. It is National Insider Threat Awareness Month, and the CyberWire is proud to be a media partner for the upcoming Insider Risk Summit, September 27th through the 29th. I spoke with Code 42 Deputy CISO Nathan Hunstad about how security teams think
0: about and approach investigations for insider risk events. Compared to times in in the past, even as recently as a few years ago, the landscape is one of increased... Insider risk, and that's due to a few reasons. Um, One of them is that a lot of people, due to things like the Great Resignation and so on, are changing jobs more frequently. And we find that when people leave a job to go to another job, they tend to take data with them because they believe it's going to be valuable to them in their new role. And obviously, that presents a risk to an organization when you have sensitive data like that. That's walking out the door, uh, possibly even to a competitor. Another reason that the risk landscape is different these days is because people are working remotely. They're no longer all in the office, you know, where you could put a perimeter firewall around uh, your network and call it good. They're all remote. They're working from home. They're working from, you know, like a the coffee shop. And because the people are distributed, it's just harder to keep tabs on what they're doing with data. Finally, data is much more likely to be widely distributed, similar to how people are distributed. Because companies are working or moving to SaaS tools, um, like online collaboration tools, like Google and, and Microsoft uh, Office 365, the data is also moving outside of the office and the file server that was on-prem. And again, because the data is distributed, it's just a lot harder to keep tabs on where that's moving. So those are some of the reasons that the the risk of data um, and the risk of insiders taking data is higher than ever before. You know, we mentioned that
1: it's Insider Threat Awareness Month, and I know you and your colleagues at Code42 prefer to refer to it as insider risk. There's some nuance there. Can you
0: explain the difference? so we like to talk about insider risk as opposed to insider threat because when you just think about the the threat part of it that assumes that the insider has already moved to like a a malicious posture where they're doing something wrong and instead we need to kind of shift left and think about the risk that all of the users in the organization may present before they kind of take that malicious step, or even if they do something that isn't necessarily malicious at all. They could be uh, mishandling data in an attempt to get their job done, and they're not acting maliciously. They're just not handling the data in the way that they should be per, you know, like your corporate uh, sanctioned tools and, on your policies. So we think that if you just focus on the threat and the people that are already malicious and doing the bad things, you're missing that broader risk picture. Because most of the time, people who may have access to data, they never move to the threat phase. They don't become Mm -hmm. actively malicious.
1: How much of, of this is setting expectations, you know, that making sure that people know if you move on to another job, well, it's not really good for
0: you to take your Rolodex with you. We're not okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the foundations of a good insider risk management program is education and setting those expectations with your users. If people aren't educated as to what the the right way to collaborate uh, with trusted vendors, for example, or what data you're allowed to take with you when you leave versus the data you're not allowed to take you with you what, uh, when they leave, then users will substitute their own judgment for that. And, you know, must be honest, users don't always have the correct judgment when it comes to those questions. So you have to educate, educate, educate on a constant basis. Uh, And the best way to do that is not only doing it like when somebody's onboarded or through your annual or periodic security training, but in response to things that actually represent uh, true risk. So if they do accidentally share something in a way they shouldn't have, if you can educate them immediately, then that message is going to last.
1: What are your recommendations for organizations who want to do a better job of this for you know, for taking inventory on the things that they're doing and the places where they can improve?
0: Yeah, so one of the best recommendations I can give is to not strictly treat this as you would another kind of like sec ops or blue team exercise, because we think that Dealing with risks like malware and ransomware and some of the things that blue teams and socks typically handle is not the way to go about it. Uh, an insider risk management program has to have the right kind of expertise and the right people doing those kinds of business-focused and empathetic investigations to really understand how the business works, how people are trying to get their job done and making sure that they are using the proper tools to get their job done and collaborate versus taking a kind of an adversarial approach where you're looking for reasons to tell users no. Yeah,
1: that seems so critical to me. You mentioned empathy, and I think particularly in a technology realm, that, that can be a place where people come up short, but it, it
0: really is important here. It absolutely is, um, because again, going back to the the insider risk versus insider threat, most people don't become, you know, the the malicious, you know, angry, disgruntled employee looking to harm the organization. They're simply trying to do their jobs, and they may not have the tools, or just be aware of the tools to do it in the way that the security team wants them to do it. And so, if you take that empathetic approach, and you try to understand what the users are. are are trying to accomplish and what their business objectives are, then you can guide them, again, educating as you you go towards the right way of doing that and and kind of shepherd them away from the risky behavior they may have been involved in before.
1: That's Nathan Hunstad from Code42. The Insider Risk Summit is coming up September 27th through the 29th. You can find out more on their website InsiderRiskSummit2022.com And joining me once again is Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Rob, it's always great to welcome you back to the show. I want to touch today on something that I saw some of your colleagues were actually blogging about over on the Dragos website. This is this notion of a crown jewel analysis when it comes to your security assets. What exactly are we getting at here?
2: I mean, at at the basic level, it's an understanding of what's most important to your business for the functions that you're most concerned with. So, as an example, a lot of infrastructure sites have hundreds, if not thousands, of sites. Right? A power company, as an example, could have two or three thousand substations. A global manufacturer could have five hundred manufacturing facilities. And and then the question, even if even if you only had five, the question is always going to be, what's actually most critical? And and at a macro level, the critical sites really should be something that's done in cooperation with the, the executives. Look at the disaster recovery plan, business continuity. You know, consider revenue, regulatory requirements, health and safety, et cetera. And there should be kind of this top to bottom list of those infrastructure sites because you may have one global corporate IT network, but you've got hundreds of little OT networks, and you're going to want to know, especially in an incident, what's the most critical. But once you get from that macro level. That's really once you get inside the environment, then you're kind of identifying what are the crown jewels in that environment. And it shouldn't just be some arbitrary thing. The same way that you shouldn't look at security controls as morally good or morally bad. It's like, look, does this one actually help us with the scenario of risk that we care about? So there should be some definition of what do we care about as a business? What are two or three or four scenarios we've got to be able to deal with, like ransomware, or, you know, or uh, electric transmission outage from Ukraine-style attack that we've seen before? If you're a power company, like what are those scenarios? And then on those scenarios, what what actually is in scope? You know, if we're if we look at a safety system-focused scenario from the 2017 uh, Saudi Arabian case, where an adversary tried to kill people targeting safety systems. Well, the safety system, the NGO workstation, and all the support systems around it are those crown jewels in that scenario. So going into a refinery and cleaning up the DMZ and being like, yep, we secured the refinery is disingenuous at best in terms of what you're actually trying to accomplish. But if you do the crown jewel process correctly, it can also really guide you so that you're not overspending. You're not trying to gold plate all of these sites, which you just don't have the resources for. It's... What are the important sites and what's most important in those sites? Let's start there. You can always expand after that. But that level of focus and prioritization is something most companies struggle with.
1: Is there a level of diplomacy that goes with this as well? Because I can imagine as you go around and, you know, poll people at your various locations,
2: they're all going to say that what we're doing here is of the utmost importance. Are you asking me how the DHS got 17 critical infrastructure sectors? No. Go on. <laughs> right, <but> probably... <laughs> <laughs> Everything is critical to everybody. Right. This gambling infrastructure is really critical. You know, yeah. You're know, you 100% correct. And that's actually exactly the issue. Is A lot of our government agencies and similar will set out, here's what we want to do, but then people cry to them. But we're also critical, and then it's hard to tell people no. And they're like, okay, okay you're critical too, and you just get into this mess. Um, so to, to answer your question more, more thoughtfully... Um, there is, but it's also, it's kind of a tactic for the security team as well. I don't, I don't want to play games when you're on the security team, but it is a fundamental and fair tactic, in my opinion, of based on the, the various programs that already exist, right? Your disaster recovery business continuity, whatever. You rank stack the 500 facilities, or whatever you have. Put it in front of the executive group, not those sites, and say, hey, is this the right order? Let them have that debate. You can foster the conversation, but it's not a security discussion anymore. It's just about the sites. And then you look at the, the risk scenarios and go, is this what we think the risk scenarios are? I go, yeah. And you go, okay, well then this is the security package. The executive committee, the board, doesn't have the expertise to govern that. So once you agree on the scenarios, once you agree on the list of the sites, then here's what the security team feels is the security package per site. And here's the budget you gave us, therefore we're going to get down the list this far, hmm. and so the the diplomacy that happens is usually the head of operations or somebody else going, "Whoa whoa whoa whoa, you stopped at site twenty out of three hundred uh, what what about the next twenty like we don't have the budget for that, so either we need to decide not to accept certain risk scenario or to accept certain risk scenarios below the twenty and have a less tailored package or we should actually get more budget to do the things that you're asking us to do. So I, I I normally see CSOs and CIOs and others like argue about how budgeting is hard and they don't have the budget, but actually most executive groups don't understand what you're trying to accomplish now that you historically haven't been doing. And so they think, well, why would I need to increase it more than... Five or 10% annually, we're doing the same work. Yeah, but you never digitally connected up or digitized your plants before, and now you are. Now we got to do all that OC security work. It needs a net new budget, not a five or 10% increase. And that process and that structure and that prioritization and that diplomacy, as you would call it, all of that is what's working really effectively for a lot of companies around the world.
1: I mean, it sounds like it's also in your best interest as you go into this sort of process. To give everybody a heads up that there's likely to be a few aha aha moments here.
2: Oh, absolutely. And that's where, when I get in front of customers, I always tell them, like, don't just roll out everything everywhere. Don't do a peanut butter spread because my most critical site should not be fully protected at the, the same time as my last critical site. Instead, let's start with the top 25 to 30% of your organization. Those are going to be crown jewels, regardless. Like, those sites, it, it guaranteed, your top 25 to 30% of your sites are pretty, pr- pretty critical to the company. Let's look at those sites. Design up the security package that makes sense. It's probably not all the stuff you're doing in IT. Um, there, you know, you've you've covered mentions before. I've talked about the five critical controls for ICS security. Like, there's probably five that you want to start with. But go put those five and the vendors and things you choose for it together at let's say six or you know some some reasonable amount of that twenty five or thirty percent, depending on how many sites you actually have. But let's say six to ten to fifteen sites um, if you have that many. Go roll it out in completion there. Learn to operationalize it, not just get through the deployment like it's a Gantt chart, you know, actually get going. And what you'll do is you'll end up finding a lot of aha moments, not only on use cases that are valuable to justify for the other sites maybe this product doesn't work with this product as well as you thought it was or this doesn't do the thing it was supposed to do like learn those things before you try to have this giant rollout. and if you get it right at kind of your critical sites and you design out what right looks like and you show success that's going to be your best um, argument as well to continue to go
1: all right well good insights robert m lee thanks for joining us That's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at TheCyberWire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Balecki.